0: Hi everyone, this is the International Society of Hypertension podcast. I'm Associate Professor Francine Marques from Monash University, Australia, and my co-host is Dr. Augusto Montesano from the University of Glasgow, Scotland.
1: Welcome back, everyone. Today, we'll have a WeChat with Professor Dame Anna Dominicak, who is a Regius Professor of Medicine at the University of Glasgow, an honorary consultant physician and endocrinologist at the NHS Great Glasgow and Clyde, health innovation champion for the Medical Research Council, and more recently, Professor Dominic Jack was appointed as Chief Scientist Health for the Scottish Government, where Anna will continue continue to advocate for the brilliant and impactful Scottish health research, development, and innovation. Anna is a world-leading cardiovascular scientist and clinician, clinic, clinical academic, where her major research interests are hypertension, cardiovascular genomics, and precision medicine. Anna has achieved so much in her career, but for us today, it is important to know that her passion for science for science and for fostering a rich scientific environment that allows the growth of many early career researchers led her to excel in large scale research funding for programs and infrastructure. One of these accomplishments is the fundraising development, and delivery of the University of Glasgow Clinical Academic Campus at the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital, which is home to a clinical innovation zone from which she led a triple helix partnership between academia, the NHS and industry. Anna is also committed to the Scottish community, and a good example of that is her work during the COVID-19 pandemic, where she led the establishment of the Lighthouse Laboratory in Glasgow, and was accountable for the UK lab testing capability across a coordinated network of 10 labs, always focusing on the partnership between academia, the NHS, and industry, and also transforming the long-term testing capability of the UK and ensuring the health and well-being of men. Anna is a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians, the American Heart Association, the Academy of Medical Sciences, the Royal Society of Edinburgh, the European Society of Cardiology, and the Society of Biology. From 2013 to 15, she was the president of the European Society of Hypertension. She is the immediate past president of the Association of Physicians of Great Britain and Ireland. And she's a member of several editorial boards. And until last year, Anna was the editor-in-chief of hypertension. So it is needless to say that Anna was an inspiring mentor and played a key role in the development of many, many careers, which is the topic of our chat today. So with that, Anna, I'm so honored, happy and I uh, Would like to welcome you and say thank you for being with us, being with us today.
2: Thank you, thank you, Guto. Uh, the introductions that go so long and so interesting are always bad beginning because from there there is only a downhill slope after this. Thank you.
1: <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure no, we won't. So. Anna, just to get us uh, started, can you tell us a little bit more about your story? How did you get involved with hypertension research and uh, how did you get to know the ISH and work with ISH?
2: Yes, so interesting story, I suppose. As a Serdiel medical student in Gdańsk in Poland, I discovered that there was a student association, a student group, devoted to hypertension. Hypertension was a big part and still is in the uh, Medical University of Gdańsk where I did my undergraduate studies. And I joined this group and that allowed me to come into hypertension very early in life. Uh, as I said, a third year medical student, we had six years medicine. So I had three years in this group of students with special interest. And we did little projects and were able to interact with, uh, with our teachers a little more than just the normal course. And that made me interested. As it happened at that time, the Glasgow Medical Research Council Blood Pressure Unit was become world-class and very famous. So as a student in Gdańsk, I already read about Medical Research Council Unit in Glasgow. So when life brought me to Glasgow, uh, just a couple of years after my graduation, I already knew that there was great hypertension in Glasgow. And an opportunity has opened um during my training in Glasgow where I did all postgraduate training so there was an opportunity for a post in medical research council unit of hypertension and my boss then a general physician in a small hospital in Paisley Guto would know where Paisley is yes so I was working as a, a senior a house officer, SHO in Paisley, and he said, Anna, they interviewing for a job in MRC unit. I know you're interested in high blood pressure. Go and practice your interviewing technique. The job is already taken, he said. I know it's already taken. So go and practice your interviewing techniques. And I went and I was completely relaxed because I was practicing my interviewing techniques. And I got the job (laughs) and this was my beginning of being in the world of hypertension. The MRC unit was a place where everybody came to train at the time, people from Australia, Francine, and New Zealand, US, and everywhere and whole Europe. I met lots of people in international hypertension And that's how I came to ISH. And in fact, the person who made me more interested in ISH committees, et cetera, was Judy Whitworth, a famous Australian lady who was a president of ISH at the time. And she asked me to become a secretary of ISH very early in my career. So I came to ISH as relatively Young, I was already a consultant physician in Glasgow, etc, but I wasn't yet a full professor, I don't think, and I already was linked with the ISH and started understanding how it works, etc. And it's been really, really good. So it was all by chance because I went to practice my interviewing skills.
1: <laughs> and, and that's great because that's something that I usually tell uh, mentees and this kind of things. Never get so confident that the position or that's yours because it's yours to lose, not yours to win.
2: Absolutely.
0: Anna, um, can you tell us about your experience in working in several committees? You have contributed to so many different societies and organizations, leading to your current position now. Um, And I was wondering if you can comment how
2: those positions help you to advance your career. I think you need to be careful because it could suck you into spending enormous amount of time on administrative rather than research duties. So I think there needs to be a balance of not doing too much too early because your research needs to take the first place. But then as you become more senior and start mentoring other people, maybe having a role as you know deputy of the PI or whatever, start being on grants, then join in and start seeing where your strengths is. Some people are great at meetings and debating and you know strategy and policy. Others are a doers who like interacting with others and perhaps you know be in uh, the young investigators groups, which are very good way, I think, not to waste a lot of time, but be part of, whether it's ISH or ESH or the Australian group. Uh, so I think you need to find your niche and then see whether you want bigger roles as you become more se- senior. And there are people who like this. I think also being part of publishing is very, very good thing. So people who are great reviewers, good or know, you know, people who are solid, great reviewers for big important journals then do well and are offered positions on editorial boards and etc. I think there is a closer relationship between research activity and publishing than just politics. You know, politics is important, but being good in publishing and being a reliable person, go-to person in an area of publishing is actually really important. And that's my experience from 10 years as Editor-in-Chief of Hypertension. Yeah, that's very good advice, thank you.
1: And Anna, now switching to our uh, mentoring aspects of this uh, interview, if, if you could, like can you define your mentorship experience in one word and let us know like, if you think the mentorship is
2: important. Yes, one word, difficult. I will try. I, I think, Guto, you know Glasgow. I think uh, I mentored colleagues who worked with me. Can't do it in one word, sorry. Um, And my biggest pride are those who succeeded. So I think, I'm not sure I've been a good mentor, but certainly my biggest pride are the professors whom I have known and supported since they were uh, PhDs in Glasgow. And there are, you know them, there are quite a few I'm proud of, from PhD or a relatively junior fellow to professor. And I suspect when you look back, this is the biggest pride that these people have succeeded and that you help them a little. You know, one shouldn't, it is the person himself or herself, it isn't, the mentor. Mentor helps only a little. It's inside you whether you succeed or not. But the pride is enormous uh, watching people to succeed. Yeah, that's and, uh, important. I, can,
1: I can say to you that you you were a very good mentor for many people because in Glasgow, uh, the stories that they say about you and how you help them in different levels, it's, it's amazing. So like, so no, very, very, you are
2: a very good. Thank you, thank you. Then my, my head might swell too much. (laughs) And Emma, can you share uh, with us
0: your uh, mentoring experience as a mentee and if there was any moment in your career that you realized you needed a mentor?
2: Yes, that's more difficult because, you know, I'm quite old as you know, I won't tell you how old, but very old really in comparison with you guys. And in my time in Scotland and in the UK as a whole, it was quite difficult for women. I haven't realized this because I came from country, middle European country, where there were many problems, but to be a woman in medical academia was not a problem. There were plenty of them. So when I came to Glasgow, I realized that was one woman professor, dermatology, only one, and one consultant in any teaching hospital. She was a renal consultant in the Royal Infirmary, good to Royal Infirmary. And there were no other senior women, almost none. So in Paisley Hospital, district general hospital when I trained in general medicine there was a woman consultant geriatrician Dr. June McAlpine who took me under her wing she was a very strong woman and that's why she made it and um, she uh, realized that I needed some help I was new to the system and she sent me to her two sons who were middle grade consultants, not yet consultants, registrars or senior registrars in the teaching hospitals of Glasgow to help me to prepare for the membership. And that was the first time really I realized, and it happened seamlessly. I didn't ask. She somehow, you know, good mentors know when, when to help. And that helped me enormously. And then her husband, who was fabulous physician, consultant, physician of old school, fabulous di- diagnostician, uh, he told me about this interview that I was to practice my skills. So McAlpine's, the team, probably very few people, she unfortunately passed away recently and there was obituary in the British Medical Journal I only saw last week. He is um, um, now old. And these two, this married couple of senior doctors helped me, Uh, I'm not sure they knew how much they helped me but I thanked them later when I got a job in Medical Research Council, I kept in touch and thanked them. After that, when I moved to the university, uh, I was told I needed a mentor I was more sort of official, by the principal of the university. And Guttod, that was before the current principal. This was Ter Muir Russell, a wonderful man, who wasn't a medic, who wasn't a researcher. He came from civil service, but he was a people person. And he understood that in that system, I needed a mentor. And he suggested a very interesting man Uh, to become my mentor because there were no women (laughs) at that time. So, you know, nowadays it's so much easier. You can really select a mentor. There are bodies that suggest a mentor frequently. Women want a female mentor. That was not really available. So I had a mentor who was a very senior figure Sir Kenneth Coleman, very senior figure in UK academia and a medic from cancer area. And I met with him regularly and this was helpful. But then this stopped being helpful because life moved on, etc. And I tried to have somebody who I thought would be a good mentor, again, a man, at the high levels and I won't give you a name because I very quickly, not quickly, no, I was naive. I thought he was my mentor. This is a cautionary tale. And then I went to a meeting when he was invited and there were many people at my career level. And I realized that there are about 40 people there who all think he's their mentor and that it wasn't real and that the relationship wasn't a real uh, constructive relationship, that it was very unilateral. I wanted him to be my mentor, but his heart wasn't in it. So be careful what you wish for, don't waste time. And I think nowadays it's easier. I think you have the world is your oyster Because people understand the value and importance of true mentorship, not paying lip service in 20 minutes somewhere. Yeah. Mm. One sign of bad mentor is if you can't arrange appointment. Mm. Too busy. Yeah. Yeah, That's a sign. I I didn't get it. I was taking it as a real thing.
1: Yeah, no, it's absolutely right, Anna. So and when you think about you as a mentor now uh, and your mentoring style, can you tell us a little bit how would you mentor someone and maybe like give us like a, some examples uh, if you can of like how would you help so many professors to achieve their goals?
2: Well, I think this is, this is what I find it difficult because every relationship is different some people need a word of encouragement a couple times a year. Other people need to meet and talk and go into more detail. It's very, very different. And I think I don't have a mentoring style. I just try to be useful to people within confines of, you know, what we have to do and other things. I think it's, you know, When I ran a research group, which is long time ago, and I miss it enormously, uh, it's different. It's a relationship which is constant. You think together, you have lab meetings together, you write papers together. That's a very sort of continuous close relationship. That mentorship is almost part of it, because if it isn't, it doesn't work. Yeah. There are people you cannot mentor mm, who know better. Yeah. And this is very, very quickly, you realize this very quickly and sort of get on with it. And then when you become a leader of a larger organization, when I moved to lead College of Medical Veterinary Sciences, it all changes. You don't have a research group, you probably shouldn't because if you do, you conflict it, yeah because you make financial and other decisions. So I decided not to have a research group. It was very painful decision, but that's how it was. And then you mentor differently. You mentor senior people by occasional meeting appraisal. Of course, you know that both university and National Health Service have appraisal. I used to regularly appraise annually many senior colleagues, particularly clinician scientists within the college. And this would be a relationship where there would be that annual formal appraisal relationship but also touch base in between for very senior colleague who doesn't need that sort of day in day out relationship but might need something bigger from time to time from someone who sees things at pretty high level. So I think I've been helpful, but not to everybody. And also, as you know, there are people who click with whom you can have an easy relationship, whatever happens, you can say difficult things and it still work and there are others you cannot. And I think you need to be open True that it is not always going to work. There are people whose brains or whatever is just structured so differently than yours that it's not going to work. And you need to say, we agree to disagree and carry on your stuff, but I can't help. Does that, is that honest? Yes. Very that's honest and I think
0: that's very useful, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And uh, what traits do you think a good mentee has?
2: I think good mentee is someone ambitious who really wants to move forward and is able to hear an inconvenient truth occasionally. I think if you only want praise, which is a very important thing and everybody needs a bit of praise, etc then it's not a real relationship. I think mm-hmm. you need the bad and the good and the ugly and if you're not prepared and if you only want you wonderful, then it's not a real relationship
1: yeah. and and Anna like you mentioned that you moved from Poland to the UK uh, after you heard about the, the establishment in like Glasgow. So what ad- other advice or like how, what advice do you give to people that are
2: trying to identify a good training environment? Right. First, the truth. I didn't move to Glasgow because MRC Black Pressure Unit. I came to Glasgow because my husband got a job in clinical biochemistry. I had nothing. I came for a ride, had three months visa and didn't know what's going to happen. I didn't know about blood pressure unit, but that came later. So I think um, it's very difficult to select the right environment. And there are so many things in life, you know, you somewhere for multiplicity of reasons, you have a partner, you need two jobs normally, it's all very complicated. Yes, so you can't just sit and say, I have to be in Harvard, this is the only place I'm going to be and you know, let everything else go to hell. I need to be in Harvard. It doesn't work like that. I think you make the best of what life offers you and then you go to meetings, interact with people and see would I do better somewhere else? I must say that I haven't moved. I came to Glasgow and stayed. But I did go to US for a year and a half uh, in my formative years, and that made me so had I stayed and never gone anywhere. I don't think I would have made it going for a year and a half to the University of Michigan. And this was selected on the basis of the same topic, met people at the meeting. This was a group I could advance in. sort of devote myself to the laboratory without clinical work for a year and a bit, yeah? Because clinical work has distracted, as you know. you always pulled away. So, so I think this was a choice to go. It was difficult. Um, I had a fellowship that was below Michigan State poverty line. So you can imagine (laughs) it was quite difficult, but nevertheless, it was worth it. British Heart Foundation funded me and I was always grateful. And I stayed with British Heart Foundation for large bits of my career as you know, Guto. So I think you need to patch up what the life hands you and what you then fashion out of the need to progress. And it's terribly important. It used to be called BTA, Been to America in the United Kingdom. Young people don't do it anymore. I've encouraged my trainees to go somewhere, somewhere good and different. And I think this is hugely important because then when you come back, your grants are better. The people who assess you see that you are open to doing something difficult and different to progress. So I started getting big grants when I came back. I got a job in the university, first temporary then permanent. So I think taking a risk somewhere in between, but also not getting stuck on the best place in the world because there is limited space in Harvard, yeah and you can achieve a lot outside
1: Harvard too. Exactly.
2: No, That's absolutely. Yeah. And,
0: uh, and we also like to talk about diversity and inclusion. And I think being the um, first women are doing many, many things in our field, and uh, I guess in, in medicine as well in many different countries, we'd love to hear your thoughts and experience about what do you think is uh, currently the biggest barrier uh, about um, diversity and inclusion and how we can potentially change
2: that? I think it's already changed enormously during my lifetime. You don't know how good is your life, chaps and chapesses. Things have changed enormously for women, for others, for everybody, for, you know, the fact of the Pride Month in the UK and the fact that is celebrated in every university, every hospital, every government institution, I now deal a lot with civil service. You know, that was something completely new. Uh, I have worked with colleagues from many minorities and I think life has changed completely. Um, you know, University of Glasgow has changed in the last 20 years. Uh, 100, 200, 300%, put any number you want. And I think we are all part of it. I think it's not only about women, although women have had a very difficult travel. And I, there was one, one issue I've been worried during COVID um, that I think things had gone a bit backwards, especially for women, you know, having work from home and small children at the same time. My daughter-in-law has two small kids and is working full time, you know, not in medicine, not in science, but nevertheless, it affects everybody. But I think now that we're coming slowly out of COVID, I think we will go back to this trajectory that everyone independent on skin color, color, sexual orientation, X chromosome one or two, we don't care, it's the quality, it's hard work, it's working together. I, I just, I must say, I remained sane in these early years where I was told that once you have a baby, you just stay at home and stuff like that, officially, openly. I'll finish with some little jokes for you from these times. But, you know, I just walked. I didn't look around. I knew what I wanted to achieve. Had I stayed in Poland, My ambition was to be professor of medicine. I didn't see any reason why I should have changed it because I changed the country. I just walked. And I think at the end of the day, we all need to help this walk. Those ambitious people need to achieve wherever they are, wherever they come from, whatever their accent, Guto knows that accent is such a big thing in the United Kingdom, much less in the States and Australia. I've been here for 40 years in Glasgow, minus one year plus in Michigan. I am asked about my accent about three times a day. It's horrendously irritating, mm. but we just need to walk up. Good to have been asked to, and where do you come from? Yeah. People say it in good faith. They don't understand that this is not pleasant. You yeah. know, you just need to. So now a few jokes. So when I came to Glasgow, I became, I went, went back to become a resident, a junior house officer, just for six months in medicine to get uh, references, to get a job. Yeah. And this was in the Royal Infirmary, that place that had one woman consultant and um after six months, I went to see the big professor who was announcing next jobs, senior house officers. And I said, I would like to become SHO in your unit. I have credentials, hard work, etc." He looked at me and said, dear, he looked at my hand, said, dear, I see you are married. He said, why don't you go home and have babies? So think about it nowadays, He would lose a job, yeah? And yet that was completely normal, completely normal. So this is my little anecdote for you. Uh, He didn't mean to be obnoxious. That was a normal way to say in Scotland to a woman, young woman physician who had ambitions to become professor of medicine. Okay.
1: And, and, uh, and it's true, like, uh, I think you touched an important point on it. It's like, instead of getting offended, uh, we should educate people and be like, look, this is not like, aha, uh-huh, but this is not appropriate. Like, and I have my goals as you have. So it's all about between, like, you know, transforming the situation, into something positive and a learning uh, experience for everyone.
2: And I think that's a good way to
1: advocate.
2: But we have changed it. You know, no one would have said something like that now. Mm -hmm. Not possible. At the interview panel for this SHO jobs, that wonderful lady who then was my mentor asked, do I plan to have a baby during that rotation? Okay. This was normal. It was a woman. There was one woman on the panel. She asked this question. And of course I did have a baby during the rotation. So, you know, and that's when she helped me. Um, I came back to full-time work and nights on call at two months of my son, two months, because there was no other way. So I'm not whinging this what I just want to show you that life has progressed enormously, enormous. enormous.
1: Yeah, no, so absolutely. it's
2: good, so it's good. We still need to do a few things, but it's good. It's so much better. Yep.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Anna, thank you so much. Now this uh, was a, a very honest uh, conversation, but I really enjoy um, all your stories, as well as uh, all your advice. I think that's very valuable. And, uh, and we wish you all the best with your new position. I'm sure you're going to be extremely successful and we look forward to everything you're going to achieve. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to our interview. If you'd like more tips on mentoring, subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with senior and emerging leaders. Stay safe, open-minded and kind.